0: Well, this morning we are talking about the words of that song, the idea of fear. In our series, Honest to God, we're specifically talking about how do you pray prayers of fear? How do you pray in times of fear to bring strength and fortitude into your life? What do those kind of prayers look like? How do you pray that kind of a prayer? It's interesting, if you saw the movie Unbroken, you got to see a man who had incredibly, true story, incredible fears. Almost losing his life, POW camp being tortured for years, and, and how he, in the midst of those fears, prayed out for God to give him strength. Interesting, the director of that movie was uh, Angelina Jolie, and she is not a person of faith, but she was so taken by this man, this is the, the real story the real man the movie was based on, a strong follower of Jesus. She so wanted to tell his story because it so inspired her. She directed the movie, and they came to a day... That they desperately needed the weather to clear up to finish this final shot. And it was not looking good. The weather reports were horrible. And in her uh, news article when she recounted the story, she said, she asked herself, what would my friend do who's a Christian? And for the first time, she said in her life, she fell down on her knees there on the movie set and prayed and asked God that he would give them a, a window of weather that they could finish the shot for one of the most important scenes. And she was just shocked that in the fear the movie wouldn't come through and the fear that she was going to you know, waste money and the fear of the deadlines, that God opened the, the skies enough that they were able to shoot that final scene. She said, you know, I'm still not sure about everything, that the whole Jesus thing and all that, but man, the encounter of this man's impact in my life, his prayer life, got me to at least start to dabble into prayer during my times of fear. And I think fear is often one of those catalysts that will drive us to at least try out prayer. We had a guy who started coming to our church about 15, 20 years ago. And he said, I don't know how to pray. I don't even know any prayers. I only know two. Now I lay me down to sleep in the Lord's Prayer. He said, I don't know how to pray. Because in his mind, prayer was a ritual, something you recite. So what we talked about last week is prayer is simply talking to God about yourself and talking to yourself about God. God wants to hear wherever you are. I had another woman come to our church for four or five years, gotten into some Bible studies and said, I realized for years I've been a worrier. I talk to myself about worries all the time. I begin to when I'm triggered to worry. I begin to just tell God about my worries, and I'm having so much more freedom in my life. Mother Teresa has a prayer that she uh, prays. I think she said she prayed it every week or every day. It's a great prayer. It's a reminder to herself, as much as talking to God. She says this: People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway if you're successful, you'll win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. It goes on. It says, What you spend years creating, others can destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. And I love that spirit of prayer that plays into everything you do. Despite how people respond, it can be an expression of your connection to God. There's a famous painting of George Washington. Uh, there's some sort of rumors as to how accurate this picture is, but it has inspired many people to pray before he went into a mighty battle. In fact, if you've seen. Uh, the evidence of the coat or cloak he's wearing it just had bullet holes all over the place and this thing got shot every which way and he was never hit toward the battle peter Lilbach, the nation's historian on george washington spoke here a couple years ago and he shared how george washington's literature is littered with a a reference to divine providence and calling out to god to, to his providence to be in control of things and to interact in the states of affairs of human beings That as a leader in times of fear in our nation, he called out to God to help him in his darkest moment. So how do we do that? I want to build on what we talked about last week, specifically on fear. That prayer is both a communication tool and it's a transformation tool. In the communication tool, we tell God where we are. I'm mad. I'm fearful. I'm scared. I don't like where I'm at in my career. I don't really think I'm fulfilling my purpose. We communicate to God where we are. The transformational tool is we tell God and ourselves where we want to go. I want to deepen my faith. I want to not worry so much. I want to believe that you're with me. So prayer is a communication tool, but it's also a transformational tool. It's interesting, as we look at these two tools, that in her book, Switch on Your Brain, Carolyn Leaf, who's a neurologist, a Christian neurologist, and um, as she's done research on how fears in particular affect our health, she's discovered, and the research is all in her book, According to research, a vast majority, whopping 75 to 98 percent of physical illnesses that plague us today are the direct result of our thought life. A whopping 75 to 98 percent of our illnesses are a result of our thought life. What we think about truly affects us both physically and emotionally. In fact, fear alone triggers more than 1,400 known physical and chemical responses in our bodies, activating more than 30 different hormones. And so dealing with fear, learning how to pray through fear, learning how to to, to calm our fears, is going to have incredible health benefits, psychological benefits, relational benefits. Right now, as that last song said, we are poisoning ourselves with our fear. I sat down with a woman that's been attending our church, recommended this book to her a couple months ago. She was just talking about all these internal thoughts that were really been affecting her for decades. And as we dialogue together, I just talked about how the Bible gives tools for dealing with this. Taking your thoughts captive, the Bible describes it. Renewing your mind by replacing your thoughts. As a person who's unconvinced in some ways, I gave her the research here of Carolyn Leaf. I said, why don't you read this book? And at the end of this book, it's got a 21-day trial of how to begin to detox your fears and detox your brain. In my last conversation with her, she said that she had been through that detox program three times. And how much more freedom she was feeling how much more um, power she was that She was really beginning to find the kind of purpose and progress she hadn't found for decades practicing these principles from the Bible of taking her thoughts captive, communicating to God where she was. So what does it look like? What? In one sense, it's really normal. It's just a normal thing of communicating to God where you're at. It's a communication tool. You tell God where you are. You know, we were on our Alaskan cruise this summer. My parents have been talking about this cruise for 30 years. They kept putting off the money to not go on this cruise so that we could go to college or so we could go to soccer camp. And my parents just made sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for us. So about two years ago, they said, we're finally going to do it. After 30 years of talking about it, we want to go to our Alaskan cruise together. We want to know if you'll come with. And how about we chip in together and we'll make this a graduation present for, for Sierra. She's graduating high school. So the five of us went on this trip And day two of the trip, and my mom is the most selfless person I know, always puts her needs behind, very generous to other people, and always doesn't need or want or ask for anything. And day two of the trip, she gets sick. And is confined to her quarters for about 36 hours. And I came back to my room and had a prayer that sounded like this: God, this is so ridiculous. This is so unfair. I cannot believe that my mom, who's dreamed of this for 35 years, that you would have the. Uh... <laughs> and I had a lot of other honest conversation with God. And I'm angry at you, and I'm mad at you, and I just cannot believe you would do this. It's just as honest. I'm. I, I'm just. This is so unfair. And God loves those kind of honest prayers. I went over to talk to my mom and she's like, you know, I'm trying to have a good attitude about this. She had an amazing attitude in this. And, you yeah, know, just God's going to teach me something through this. But you know what? God was honored by her prayer as she was using prayer as a transformational tool. I'm going to not have self-pity. I'm going to instead be thankful that I'm here and that I can have several days. And I was using it as a communication tool. God, this is so ridiculous what you're doing. Both of those are important parts of the progress. In Psalm 55, it's a it's a psalm of, of fear. The writer's in a deep time of fear. And there's several sort of steps we can follow as we're beginning to tell God where we are. Number one, you can just ask God to listen. That's totally okay. This prayer starts off that way in Psalm 55. Lord, give ear to my prayer, O God. Don't hide yourself from me. Because it feels like you have been. Gi- give, give ear. Or don't hide yourself from my supplication, which means my request. God, attend to me. Hear me. Now, you don't have to use it all formal way. That's sort of how they spoke back then. You can just say, God, I need you to listen. This is a big deal. God, this really matters to me. God, listen up, because I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling here. Attend to me. Listen up. It's okay to pray that way. Then, part of prayer is admitting all your emotions. That's why we're using these emoticons in our series, because God wants to hear all your emotions. Happy, sad, fearful, surprised, angry. God wants to hear it all. He wants you to be real with him. And sometimes as you're giving him your emotions, they may not be real. They may not be uh, validated, but that's how you are. It's where you're at. It's okay. If you're depressed and you're not justified, tell him you're depressed anyway. If you're angry and you're totally out of line, tell him you're angry anyway. God wants to meet us where we are. Look what it says in this next verse. I love what it says here. Give ear to my prayer, O God. So i got some prayers going out. Do not hide yourself from my supplication. That's a different type of praying attend to me, listen up, I'm down here, hear me, I am restless in my complaints, i got a lot of things I'm complaining about, I love this next one, and I moan noisily. There are times that you're so fearful, that you're in such distress, you don't know how to pray, you're just groaning, oh, about a prodigal son. You're groaning about a business decision that has got you pushed into a pressure cooker. You're groaning about a physical ailment or news of your daughter's physical ailment. And you don't even know how to pray. You just groan. God wants to hear all four categories when you pray. All your emotions, whether they're true or not. Here's, here's those four categories again. Prayers is when you're just telling God, thanking God for who He is. <laughs> Supplications is when you're saying, God, I want to write down some things I need. But God wants to hear your big pile of poo. God wants to hear your complaints. He wants to hear what's going on. He wants to hear what's bothering you. Now, you mean in the process of doing any of these things, find out that maybe what you want isn't what he really should answer? But God wants you to pour it all out, and God even wants to hear your noisy groanings. Now, I love the freedom in that. It's not ritual. It's not formality. It's just honest dialogue with God. Philip Yancey, in his book *Disappoint with God, tells of an awkward moment in a little small church. They opened up a mic and said, "Anyone could come down and pray." So, it was sort of noisy rustling of papers as people, somebody'd come down and pray and sit back down. A woman walked up to the microphone. It was quiet; maybe a little hymn music playing. She prayed a prayer, something like this in the mic. She said, "God, I'm so angry that you let me get raped. Why didn't you stop that, God?" Everything gets silent in the room. No more rustling of papers. She said, and "I hated the people in this church because they tried to comfort me, and I didn't want comfort. I wanted revenge. But God, thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for sticking with me. Thank you for being with me in my darkest hour, and for these people who stayed by my side. Now that's an honest prayer. A deep fear of shame, a deep fear of the need for revenge, a deep fear of rejection. God wants honest prayers like that. He wants us to reach out to him. Scott Rigsby had the same thing. Scott Rigsby was in a horrible accident. In this horrible accident, he had fears about his future. He had fears about his health. his fears about his relationship. In a moment, he became a double amputee. And in the process of his anger with God and his fear about what was going to happen, he began to be honest with God about his noisy groanings and his supplication and his fears and his challenges. And God met him in the midst of his honest prayers. And reestablished a purpose for him he didn't he didn't have to fear the future anymore. God had a plan for him, despite what had happened. Let's watch.
1: Hi, I'm Scott Rigsby. I'm a double amputee and a triathlete. Well I was uh, eighteen years old, I was working a summer job with two of my best friends from high school. We were working for a landscaping company and we were sitting on the back of this pickup truck. An 18-wheeler had been following us and decided to pass us from behind. So he moved over and when he did, his vehicle clipped our vehicle. I got knocked off. My legs got lodged in between our flatbed trailer tire. And I literally bounced up and down the road over 328 feet on the pavement. For the next three years, from 1994 to 1997, I'm in pretty much a drug-induced coma and addicted to prescription medications. One day I had this conversation with a pastor friend of mine, and he talked to me for about two hours. And through my drug-induced haze, the only thing I can remember him saying is that that God had a plan for my life. That's really when I finally connected with God. Uh, I poured out all my hurt and my anger, and I cursed God for everything that he possibly was worth. He simply said, I'm glad you're finally being honest with me. It was uh, December uh, 2005. I was at uh, probably the lowest point in my life. And so I just said a simple prayer. I said, God, if you'll open up a door for me, then I'll run through it. Uh, About a week later, um, I was in a bookstore, and I looked and I saw this female amputee on the front cover of Runner's World. Triathlete Magazine and Sarah, who had lost her leg above the knee, she completed that, had just completed the Hawaiian Ironman. And so, right then and there, I knew that my purpose, I felt like that God wanted me to run an Ironman. Insurmountable odds I wanted to Place my Ordinary life In the hands Of an extraordinary God So he could do Extraordinary things There's a verse in the Bible And I'll paraphrase it It says I count everything But loss Compared to The knowledge Or the worth Of knowing Jesus Uh, At the end of the day When I put my head On the pillow about knowing God, and it's about making Him known. And if I haven't done that day, then I've lost that day. If I haven't done that over the course of my life, then I've lived a lost life.
0: There's two things I love about this story. One, he's sitting in self pity and anger, and he uses prayer as a communication tool to say, I'm just going to get honest with God about my anger and my fear. But then that process becomes a transformational tool, but instead of sitting and wallowing in self-pity for the rest of his life, he finds a purpose, he finds a plan, he finds a dream. In one sense, you got to see both those tools working right there in the midst of it. And he found out there's a God who's able to hear whatever we feel. And if you have a God that's not got a big enough chest that you can pound on your fears, your anger, your frustrations, then you probably have the wrong God. Because the God of the Bible made the universe and his chest is so big you can pound on him. He is never surprised by your anger. Oh my goodness, you feel that way? He knows already. He wants you to communicate to him where you are because that begins the process of feeling, of uh, healing. God will not heal what we will not feel. And it's in the process of feeling that God brings his healing into our lives through that process. And that's why the third step of prayer in communication is we ask God to listen. We admit where we're at, but then we can analyze ourselves. Part of the process of prayer and writing out prayers like the psalmist would do was you could analyze the thoughts that you were allowing to go through your head. Worry. How many of us just have worries run through our head all the time? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? What if that happens? Part of prayer is turning those toward God or even more so writing those prayers down so you can analyze. Well, that's irrational. Well, that's not true. Well, that is is causing problems. For many of us, we let the the, the voice of regret in our mind all the time. If only I'd done this. If only she'd done that. If I hadn't done this. And we're wasting away brain cells. And and according to Carolyn Leaf, the, the biological processes, the biochemical processes of this type of thinking actually produces thoughts that create these what she calls dead trees. You're literally killing your brain as you begin to focus on regret and worry. But as we begin to analyze our fears, we tell ourselves, I can't handle it if... And God says, you can handle it with me. Bitterness, I can't fr- forgive them because... And God lets you analyze that and say, yeah, actually you can, because I've forgiven you far more. That's where we move from the communication tool to the transformational tool. And this is why the, the writers of the Old Testament would write this stuff down. I love what it says here in this next verse. It says, um, in analyzing yourself, it says, as for me, I call out to God. Now notice again, he's talking to himself he's not talking to God. God, I'm calling out to you. He's talking to himself. As for me, I, come on, i got to call out to God. God will save me. See how he's moving toward transforming thoughts? God will save me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress. And he is hearing me. doesn't feel like it, but I'm going to tell myself. He's hearing me. So, self, cast your burden on the Lord. So he's not talking to the Lord. He's talking to himself. Come on. Stop worrying and casting it on you. Cast it on the Lord, and He will sustain you. See how he's capturing his self-talk? He's beginning to analyzing his own thoughts and telling himself to redirect his fears toward God. That's where we get into what I call the transformational tool. It's interesting that writing your your, your thoughts down is so important. The reason we got this book is because it's in the process of writing out your thoughts, worries, and regrets that engages multiple parts of your brain. Karen Leaf, in her book, Switch on Your Brain, describes why... We can't just think them. We must write them down. Because different parts of your brain, some engage the emotional reaction to something that's happening in your past, the hippocampus. Other parts of your brain engage the rational side. And when that hippocampus kicks in, your rational side is is out to lunch, which is why you're reacting. You're not thinking rationally. And they've done brain tests to, to show this. So what happens is when you begin to write out your prayers, write out your fears, it actually engages all aspects of your brain and helps you actually move forward as you begin to write it down and go, that is how I'm feeling. That's what's been going through my brain. I don't even think that's true, but wow, no wonder I'm feeling so bad. I will many times when I feel stressed. I'll pull out a, a, a journal and write down why am I stressed. I did that this week uh, in using the, uh, the chapters that we're in. So what are some of my fears? I said, God, I'm not calling out to you. I often think I'll ignore my fears and they'll go away. I get overwhelmed by them. Or I just sort of buck up and say I'm going to push through instead of actually processing them. Some of the fears, God, that I feel like are going through me right now is that with the transition of my daughter going off to college, that things will never be the same. I've caught myself thinking that it'll never be the same, and that's bad. Well, it's not necessarily bad. But by writing that out, I went, wow, I keep saying never in my mind. Sometimes when I get bored or restless, I have a fear that in my boredom, um, in my restlessness, you know, I might be- make bad decisions. You know, certainly many of us this week with the big financial drop early- Thursday and Friday, and then early this week, there's a whole lot of fear. Many of you are financial advisors. You had a lot of phone calls this week, telling people, analyze your thoughts, don't react here, come on, don't make a big deal, right? You were in the transformation process. But two of the big fears I wrote down as I was writing out what she talked about here was that I've just seen so many people from age 40 to age 60, when they go through empty nests, make the transition from a child-centered marriage to an activity-centered marriage. And I know a lot of people are in their 60s, and I, quite frankly, do not want their marriage. Just don't. They don't seem like they like each other. They don't seem like they're happy. And I just know this is a critical transition point. So one of my fears is that, and I don't think we've had a child-centered marriage, but one of the fears I wrote down is, I don't want to drift from each other and just get into separate activities and have a parallel life. Sometimes for me that caused a lot of anxiety because now I'm like, well, i got to fix it now. It's got to be fixed now. i got to stop that now. That was one of my fears. I went, you know what? I'm really stressed about something that might happen in 20 years. (laughs) But I think forward. And writing that down was so helpful. You know what? I'm aware of it. Now, what can I do today that's not coming out of stress? I'm now surrounded in my household by ISTJs in the Myers Brig. I'm an ENFP. That's Jesus personality in case you don't know. Um that's an extrovert, that's a intuitive, that's a feeler, and that's a perceiver. And now I'm surrounded in my house by introverts, sensories, thinkers, and judgers. And uh and those are those are great things. God's made all of our personalities different, but it's just interesting that there's a lot of fear coming out of that, like, you know, Sierra and I wanted to talk. Now I'm surrounded by people who don't necessarily want to talk. What does that mean for us? What's our dynamic? And as I began to write those things out, what does it mean for me to adapt to this? What does it mean for us to be a family in this new environment? Anyway, lots, lots of other fears. I, I could give you a few others, so I'll just stop there. What's interesting in her research, she said this. And again, you're going to see my BA degree versus my BS degree here. So if I mispronounce these wrong, my apology. The basal ganglia helps the hippocampus, the frontal lobe, and the corpus callosum turn thought and emotion into action. This is the process of writing out your fears. The basal ganglia do this by helping to ensure memories get built into the trees of the cerebral cortex as you're writing out your prayers. They also smooth out fine motor fa- actions and set the idle rate for anxiety. So when you write things out, your idle rate goes down of your fears and worries. Together with the motor cortex, the cerebellum helps you permanently record the info you just received. Oh, that's true. I've got to record that. i got to remember that. I've got to meditate on that. That's why we've created a book for you. There is scientific, biochemical uh, evidence to suggest this will help you going through and writing out your fears together. So how does it transform? Let me just get real practical on that. How is it a transformational tool? Because it allows you to analyze yourself so you can move forward. A great acronym for fear is these are false expectations that appear to be real. That's what fear is. So part of writing out your prayers or sharing with God where you're at is you begin to analyze what's true and what's false. Like I did a little bit in this piece here. Oh, you know what? I am really causing anxiety over a false truth. So the process of writing out your prayers is a way to do that. So I want to look at what psychologists call cognitive dissonance. It's amazing what psychologists have discovered with cognitive therapy. The psalmists were doing with was called Soul Talk thousands of years earlier. Notice how they write out exactly how they feel and they can catch themselves with cognitive dissonance. Meditating on things that aren't true. I'll give you the first one. Personalizing. Personalizing is incorrectly thinking that everything people say or do is a reaction to you. Now, you can see this in your teenagers all the time. I know what she was saying. I know what she was thinking. Everybody was talking about me. Now, sometimes it's true, but most of the time, we ain't that important. But it's that personalizing that actually creates fear and anxiety in us about rejection, about acceptance. Notice what the writer writes out. Because of the oppression of the wicked... For they bring down trouble upon me. In the wrath they hate me. As if this this empire of evil armies came in and they weren't just trying to conquer the city. They said, where's David? It's all about you. As if the problems in the world, the economic challenges, when you begin to say, I've got a black cloud over my head. God's out to get me. The boss was picking on me. The, The company's picking on me. Sometimes you don't realize you're doing it. You write it out. You say, that's really my issue. I've personalized this and that's why it feels so much deeper is it's not just hey this is a bad situation there's wicked people I've made it personal and as you write that out you can go okay I'm personalizing here this is a false expectation here's another one in the text catastrophizing many of us have so much fear and anxiety because we catastrophize all the time we use words like never and always like I, I was doing in my piece it's never going to be same it's always going to be different my heart is in anguish within me. And he was. But notice now he's going to catastrophize. The terrors of death have fallen on me. He's heading towards suicide now. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. Do You see how the snowball grows? It goes from terrors of death. I'm scared it might happen. Fear and trembling. It's getting worse. Horror has overwhelmed me. This is when you begin to start with a thought. I wonder what's going to happen. What if that happens? Well, if that happens, then this will happen. If this happens, then that will happen. If that happens, then, then, then if, they, if they don't get their homework done, then they, they'll get a bad grade. If they don't get a bad grade, they won't get into college. If they will get into college, they're not going to have a job. If they're going to college, they're going to live in the basement. They're going to live in the basement. We can't ever get rid of them. <laughs> now, that's catastrophizing. Now, see, we all do that. But the process of writing out those things, you begin to catch yourself earlier, before it gets to horror has overwhelmed me. This is a tool the Bible has given us that really brings freedom. That's catastrophizing. Another cognitive dissonance, and the third one, is called escapism. And you see this just clearly. I can't push through. I'm losing my fortitude. I just want to get out of here. Again, you see that exactly in the psalmist says. Escapism is instead of dealing with disappointment or pain or difficulty, we long to run away. Some of us, we run away physically. Some of us medicated through alcohol or through drugs or through sex. God wants to teach us how to develop the skills in our mind and otherwise to push through pain and difficulty and disappointment. But that's hard. So the instinct is usually escapism. And look how honest he is about his prayer. I said, oh, that I had wings of a dove. I wish I could just fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I'd hurry to my place of shelter, far from the tempest and storm. That's really an honest prayer. I remember when Beth and I first found out that Quinn had blind Blindness. I took her away on a, on a vacation together just so we could process it together. We're sitting at this uh all-you-can-eat buffet at a, at a place down in Cancun. And I looked at her and I said, How are you feeling right now? And she saw sort of tears running down her cheeks. She said, I wish I could just run away. I said, That's exactly how I feel too. And so God wants us to be honest about those feelings and also say, All right, I'm not going to run away. God, I need you to help me get through. And that's the transformation. Every time that thought comes into your mind, I want to run away, you say, God, help me get through. And you begin to replace the thought. The next uh, cognitive dissonance that we see the, the writer working through is filtering. And we all do this too. You filter out certain things and you don't listen to it. And then you magnify other things. It's like wearing glasses. And you filter out bad news sometimes. Or sorry, you filter out good news and only hear bad news. Some of us who have melancholy tendencies, that's what we do, Right? The cup, the cup is always half empty because you don't even see the good stuff. You have actually trained your brain to focus on the negative, And you wonder why you're negative all the time. It's because of filtering. Filtering is negative details and magnifying them while filtering out the positive. Lord, confuse the wicked. Confound their words. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they prowl about on its walls. Malice and abuse are within it destructive forces are at work in the city. So things are bad. This isn't like he's imagining stuff. It's a bad time. Now, look at this. Threats and lies never leave the streets. There's not one moment of peace. Every single moment, they never leave. It's always bad. It's always lies. Lie, 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 lie. Every time everybody talks, lies. Our city a city of lies. It's never going to be different. Things are never going to change. I feel without any possibility of hope. I feel any possibility of change. And I wonder why I'm so depressed. But often, you and I are doing that all the time, but we don't realize it. It's in the process of writing out what we're thinking. We go, oh, wow. Creating not only a fear journal, but a grateful journal forces you to begin to not filter. I'm going to purposely look for the good stuff. Oh, it's not always. It's not all bad. There are good things going on with my son, my daughter, my mom, my dad at the work. That's one of the ways the Bible's given us to not lose the, the, the aspect of this. The filtering aspect to come against that. And the last one is what I'll call emotional logic. Emotional logic is the teaching. It's very prevalent in our culture today, so it's hard to actually step out of it because our culture sort of teaches it. And that is, if I feel it, it must be true. And that's why when you write out your prayers, you tell God exactly how you feel, but you also say, God, this might be a false expectation appearing real. Help me process if this is true or not. Emotional logic means if it feels true, it is true. Look what he says here. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. Hey, if it was a bad guy who betrayed me, I could handle it. If it was a foe who were rising against me, I could hide it. Now we get to hear a little bit of the story. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship with the house of God. He says, I'm feeling betrayed and attacked by somebody who was a friend of mine, a business partner, a fellow churchgoer. That's why this hurts so much. That's why my fear is so high. This isn't an enemy. This is a, a fellow friend who stabbed me in the back. And look at his phrase, this is so great, emotional logic. We once enjoyed sweet fellowship in the house of God. Now hold that emotion when you hear what he wants to do It is his dear sweet friend. We used to enjoy sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. Let death take my enemies by surprise. I hope he's walking along one day and just... Bam! Something falls on top of him. Lightning bolt. I'll take it. Just get rid of that guy. Now that probably feels true. When you get betrayed, when you get stomped on, when you get rejected, when you in the back, if you're really honest, you say, you know, I want revenge. I'd like bad things to happen to him. But the Bible, in God's grace, allows you to be honest with where you are and then say, okay, well, let's pack up. See, religious people say, I've never had a thought like that in my life. And you go, I can't relate to that. The Bible allows you to be honest with where you are, but also allow God to transform your thinking to where you want to be. That's the power of prayer. That's how it comes against your fears. We had a prayer like that about four months ago now. We just had a day where uh, Quinn just sort of, he's a six-year-old boy or five-year-old at the time, and he began, we came home and found him standing up on a railing. Here's a photograph of that railing. So he's sitting up on the railing with a two-story drop, just smiling, having a good old time. And you talk about the fear level going up. It took him off that no-no and got a railing but he's climbing up the railing sitting up there about to fall down and the next a couple hours later he walks up on that railing overlooking the drop-off to our lower floor and he's walking up there and again how do you tell him that that's a bad thing when he's autism and all these challenges and and so we're like oh my goodness what are we going to do we put him in bed that night we're having this prayer like our son's probably gonna be dead tomorrow i mean these are like real honest risks and my wife I'm like what are we going to do well, we got to find some way to fix this and it needs to be done fast it needs to look good and it needs to be cheap
1: <laughs>
0: can i get one out of three no we need all three i remember having that prayer that night and I mean god we're really in trouble and i couldn't get this to the next night but anyway god we need your help i mean we need you to help protect him we're going to watch over him but you know you can only watch It was like the one safe place we had was our house i just felt like god gave us a, 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 an idea that night and being honest about our fears and so the next day I got up, I said, hey, I had this idea last night. What do you think? And so what we did is we actually found a way to protect him using plexiglass. So I took some two-by-two two, two beams and I anchored them onto our ceiling. Next picture. Next picture. There it is. It's on the left-hand side. So I anchored these two-by-two two beams up there and these giant plexiglass walls so it still looks halfway decent because I didn't put, you know, drywall up there. It still sort of looks like the house is supposed to look, but also he can't climb in there. And then we added a piece of plywood so that now he can only fall five feet instead of ten feet. Because otherwise, when I go down the stairs, I'd be like, oh, so at least here it sort of goes, Phew. so if I grow at all, I'm in trouble. But I felt like God was saying, listen, I'm here in the midst of the fair, I'm going to watch you, I'm going to give you ideas, I'm going to help you with these complex and challenging problems. God works in the midst of it. You see, the Research has shown, there's a guy named Matthew Broderick, not the guy from Ferris Bueller. Um, he was a general in both Viet, served in, in Vietnam, but he also worked with uh, George Bush in uh, Katrina, the hurricane hit Katrina. What was amazing is that how did they miss it? How did they miss that the dams had broke? How did they miss that the levees had cracked? And they did some studies on what happened. And he had served in Vietnam before, and he was used to getting reports. So whenever the first reports come in, they were always bad in whatever situation he was in. He always waited for what he called the ground troops. The ground troops would always come after the initial response, and that's where you found what was really going on. He left the day of the response to Katrina, and he heard news that the levees had broken. But he heard lots of other reports what he considered to be the ground truth, that people said, hey, we missed it, we dodged a bullet, it's all good. So in his mind, he filtered out the initial report that it was bad, because he said, no, no, based on my past experience, I'm used to That's always wrong. I've now gotten the ground truth. But what he didn't realize is that he had never served in a city that was below sea level. And that's what happens. Many of us don't hear facts because we filter it out based on our own experience. That's why we need God and we need other people to help us in our decision making. They did a study of the situation with Matthew Broderick and they call it emotional tagging. Emotional tagging is a process by which emotional information attaches itself to thoughts and experiences stored in our memories. This emotional information tells us whether or not to pay attention to something or not. And it tells us what sort of action we should be contemplating. And the process of prayer allows us to do that. It allows us to say, oh, I need to take action here. Well, oh, that's false. I don't need to be spending so much mental energy on that. And that's where freedom comes. Which is why I think the, the main application to this text is simply what he said in the earlier verse. When you're fearful, when you're scared, when you're not sure what to do, cast your burdens on God right now. Cast your burdens on him. Using the two tools he's given us. These are actual tools you can use. Cast your cares upon the Lord. But something you've got to do. You've got to pray. You've got to tell him. You've got to cast him. And then he will sustain you. He will never leave the righteous shaken if you will practice these tools when you come into time of fear. It will bring freedom into your life, less fear into your life. And you know, even the greatest military commanders in history have known this to be true. When uh, our forces were going into Germany from France, the Allies were advancing from France toward Germany, Rather, um, General Patton, prayed this prayer because they desperately needed the reins to change. Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain these immoderate rains with which we have had to contend. God, grant us fair weather for battle. Graciously hearken to us as soldiers who call upon thee that armed with your power, we might advance from victory to victory and crush the oppression and wickedness of our enemies and establish thy justice among men and nations. Amen. This prayer by General Patton was passed from place to place, and people were praying. And sure enough, it said in the report, his most famous prayer that I just read had a wide circulation. 250,000 copies in card form were distributed by the chaplains to the soldiers of the United States 3rd Army at a critical time in the Allied advance from France toward Germany. And its apparent positive result, as requested, the torrential rains gave way to fair weather for battle, made it legendary. To which General Patton would say, I'm a tough dude and I need prayer. He said, when it comes to life, you need three things. And I love this quote about the three things. Here's the three things you need to do. You need to plan. You need to pray. He says, chaplain, I'm a strong believer in prayer. There are three things that men get what they want. By planning, by working, and by praying. Any great military operation takes careful planning or thinking. Then you must have well-trained troops to carry it out. That's working. But between the plan and the operation, there's always an unknown. That unknown spells defeat or victory, success or failure. It's the reaction of the actors to the ordeal when it actually comes. Some people call it getting the brakes. I call it God. So invite the band to come up. This next song is about how when you pray, you invoke the battle lines of heaven to come and help you in the midst of it. And who among us, if General Pat needs it, don't you? Don't you want to do different things and not do the same thing over and over again for the next two years, five years, ten years? God offers something powerful, transforming, and changing. You don't have to be enslaved to the fears you've been enslaved with. You don't have to keep doing the same thing over and over again. You don't have to be in bondage to your past. You don't have to be in bondage to your habits. You don't have to be in bondage to the things you've done before. Freedom is within reach. The armies of heaven can come and with you help come against these false expectations and these fears. I mean, imagine you go into work tomorrow. You go into your day today. And none of your circumstances change. But you say, I know God is with me. I know I'm not alone. I know he can work all things together for good for those who trust him. Whether you believe in God or Jesus or the Bible or not, do you see how that mindset would be better? Now imagine if it is true. I think it is. It would change everything. As you hear this next song, imagine yourself what your fears would be like if this was the anthem of your heart. There's a great promise that God gives to Joshua just as he's facing his fears of the unknown. I want to pray that that promise over us today in Joshua chapter 1. He says this. Come on, bow your heads with me. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous for I am with you. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. I am with you. Be strong and courageous. Meditate on my promises and my words day and night. Do not turn to the left or to the right. Be strong and courageous, for I will never fail you. Go into the land, and every foot you step upon, every piece of land you step upon, you shall have it. Amen. Go before us, face your fears, give you a God who is with you. If you came prepared to give us some offering boxes on the way out, if you knew the church, we'd love to say hi. Third door on your left is the heart's room. Thanks again, we'll see you next week.